0: Well, if you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 1. We are picking up where we left off in this series that Pastor Barrett and I have been working through on the shadows of Christ in the Old Testament and trying to lay the groundwork for how we can better understand um, and make sense of how the Bible fits together and how Jesus is the center of God's revelation and how all of those parts and contours, all the genres, all the different ways in which God speaks, because God speaks in so many ways in Scripture, um, and in whatever voice he is speaking, there is a shadow cast um, from the Lord Jesus on the pages of the Old Testament for our faith and for our salvation. And so tonight, as we continue on in this series, I want to I uh, start the first of what will probably be two or three sermons on the first and the last Adam. There is so much in the Bible about the first and last Adam. There are three principal places we could go in the New Testament, uh, Romans chapter 5, 12 through 21, Hebrews 2, 5 through 14, and then over in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 20 through 24, and then 40 through 46, I believe. And those are sort of the the apostolic explanation of Jesus as the last Adam. Um, and I will say this this evening as we come to look at this first one that we are just hoping to lay categorical groundwork for understanding how this, I'm going to use a big word, kids, this architectonic principle, how it holds everything together, the biggest overarching principle that keeps everything God reveals together. And so we're looking this evening at Genesis 1, beginning in verse 26, and then I'd like to read down um, a few verses and then jump over to chapter 2 and pick up in verse 8. Genesis 1, 26, now at the uh, crown of creation, as it were, God has created the habitable world and He's created the spheres, and he's filled those spheres, and now he is, he is doing the crown of his creation. And, and Moses records these words for us. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I am giving you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And then if you would skip over to chapter two, verse eight, we read, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. In the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. And then notice verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, "'This is at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman.'" Because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And then, if you would turn over in the New Testament briefly to Romans 5, we're not going to look at this in any detail, but just to cast light a bit on what we are going to consider. The Apostle Paul here giving the mechanics of justification by faith alone. Notice there in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin was in the world before the law was given, yet sin is not counted when there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come, but... The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. Notice verse 17. For if, because of one man's trespass, death would reign through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I sometimes fear that in our lives, in our full schedules, in our, in our busyness, in our interactions, in our ambitions and goals... That, that we, as those who profess every week the great truths of Christianity, we tend, to, we tend to become myopic and we tend to often turn in on ourselves and our worlds, and, and we inadvertently sort of detach ourselves from where we belong in, in the world and in human history. What I mean by that is that we can't make sense of anything in this world if we don't understand the scriptures teaching about the first and the last Adam. We can't understand anything about humanity, about the fallen nature of man, about man's original purpose, about uh, what, what happened when Adam fell. Why, why did we fall in him? Did we fall in him? If we did fall in him, d- did we get just the corruption? Are we just made able to sin? Or do we now have the guilt of his sin and we actually sin as a consequence of that? We have corrupt natures. And, and, and what do I have to do to get where man was supposed to be originally because at the end of the day, we're all very consumed with our interests and agendas and goals and we we want to accomplish things, we want to feel a sense of success, and yet we are constantly frustrated. We are constantly frustrated in this world. And when we step back for a moment from just looking at what's going on in my life, what's going on right here, and we, we see the big picture of what God is doing, everything else starts to sort of make sense. We're able to deal with the frustrations. We're able to deal with life. Um, I sometimes ask myself the question, am I really meditating enough on the truth that all men are either in Adam or in Christ? Um, There was a famous Puritan, I think it was Thomas Goodwin, who said, um, ultimately, it's as if there are only two giants on earth, Adam and Christ, and that every single person is hung around the belt of one of those two giants. So that every person sitting here and every person in this world and everybody that you meet does not stand or fall on his or her own, but are represented either by Adam or by the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And that means that the totality of my life and the totality of your life is built on that so that we should be supremely interested in being able to step back and take take in the panorama of the biblical teaching about that and the implication that that has on our lives. Now, what I want to do tonight, if I can, is just sort of lay some groundwork. It will be basic. It will not cover all the things that... I would like to cover that, that you may have questions about and hopefully we'll be able to, but I want us to look, just considering what we read, especially out of Genesis, at the first Adam at creation. What, what was happening there? What was God doing? What, why, why is that so important that we get that right? And then secondly, I want us to consider the last Adam in redemption, the first Adam at creation, the last Adam in redemption, and, and they are going to mirror each other. What Christ comes to do he is going to be the replacement man. He's going to be the last Adam, the, the, the eschatological Adam. He's going to bring human history to a a, a, round, a rounding up, a fulfilling in himself everything that Adam failed to do. So we have to first understand what was Adam doing in the garden. Um, I think this might be helpful if we just sort of look at three things about Adam at creation tonight that we see in Genesis and throughout the scriptures. The first is that Adam is God's glorious image-bearer. Um, the writer to Hebrews speaks about, I'm sorry, the, the psalmist speaks about the heavens declaring the glory of God. And the writer of Hebrews talks about how God's glory is manifested in the creation. And if, if it's true that the heavens and the heavenly bodies and the animals and the insects and the birds and the fish and, and everything in creation is, is showing forth something of the glory of God. We are to understand from Genesis 1 that the greatest display of God's glory in, at creation was man. That, that of all his creation, there is only one who is placed on the earth to display his glory. Um, there's a great book, Thomas Boston wrote a book called Human Nature and Its Fourfold State, and it goes through man before the fall, man in a state of fallenness, man in a state of grace, man in a state of glory. It's, a, it's an incredibly important book in church history. And, and Boston has this way of imagining what Adam would have been like at creation. And he says, you know, when Moses came down the mountain, and his face was reflecting the glory of God because he had been in the presence of God. He, Boston said, imagine Adam having a permanency to the radiating glory of God in the garden. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look in the mirror, there's not a lot of glowing going on. And when I look at most of you, there's not a lot of glowing going on. <laughs> but, but when we look at Adam in the garden there would have been an unbelievable external display, not not to mention the moral internal, the the righteousness and the holiness, but but as a result of him being the righteous image bearer of God, as a result of him being the the display of God's holiness and his his moral beauty, and that there was an overflow of the glory that accompanied that. Um, There would have been a radiance to Adam. Boston will go on and he will say there would have been a, a, a glorious harmony in Adam um, wanting to do the will of God. There, there would have been this incredible intellect of Adam, knowing who he was and, and what God wanted of him, that he would have acknowledged um, the, the, moral, the moral law of God. He would have acknowledged the goodness of God in a way that none of us has ever done that. Not one of us. Um, Adam was far more advanced in his unfallen condition than we are because he was God's glorious son. Um, I heard a great illustration to explain the nature of this. Imagine, if you would, a man, a king, finds out that his son has had his face marred in an accident. And, um, And the doctor said, well... We, we can make sure that your son will still live, but we will never be able to restore what your son lost. And in this illustration, this individual said, the king, the king only wants his son's face back. He wants his image back. Adam, Adam, man was meant to show forth something of the image of the infinite and all-glorious triune God. Um, uh, secondly, Adam was to be God's vine. Now, this this may not seem as um, apparent on the surface, but there in Genesis, one of the first things that God tells Adam in the garden is, "Be fruitful and multiply." Now, I'll, I'll say this and pick up on this again in a moment. Everything that God says to Adam and Eve, He first says to Adam. Adam is the, the fountainhead, not Adam and Eve. Adam is the first man. He's the fountainhead. And, and God wants to make him. and He's going to need Eve to do this. He is to be a fruit-bearing living vine. You know, it's interesting. God places Adam in the garden, but in a very real sense, Adam is the garden. Do you see that? That he came out of the ground that the Lord had made and God's blessing was poured into him in, in such a way that just as Adam is to cultivate the garden, Adam himself is to be cultivating fruitfulness. He is to be the vine that is he and Eve together to bring forth righteous fruit to God, to, to, to spread that vine out throughout the earth, to be fruitful, multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. He is He is to to replicate the image of God in his offspring so that there are more and more and more images of God on the face of the earth until the whole world shows forth who God is. that's, That's what we were at creation. That's what we were at creation. We were supposed to be part of that global spread of the living vine of God's image, righteous Worshipping image bearers. Um, we get a glimpse into how, how much is lost, don't we, when in the early chapters of Genesis it says that Adam brought forth, fallen Adam brought forth a son in his own image. That's not felicitous. That's saying he's bringing forth sinners now, rebels, bad fruit, wild vines, right? That's how God spoke to Israel. Remember, he he says Israel was his vineyard. Israel was his son. We've talked about that. Well, this is the first son. This is the original son. This is, Luke tells us, this is God's son in Jesus' genealogy. In Luke 3, it goes back to Adam, the son of God, the, 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 the vine that, that's supposed to be bringing glory to God by fulfilling that original procreation mandate by cultivating his offspring to be those that do what God has told them to do. He is to carry out that mandate in the earth. Well, the third thing, and connected with that, is that Adam is to be humanity's prophet, priest, and king. Now, this is supremely important. Um, When God created the garden... It was in a place called Eden. So the garden is not Eden. Eden was a place on a mountain. The garden was to the side of Eden. And the garden was a special place where God took the man from outside the garden and he put him within the garden. He took him, Calvin says, from the common dust. And he put him in a place of special blessing where Adam could dwell with him and worship him. And we are to understand that the garden is the temple, it is the temple sanctuary. This is, he is dwelling as God's prophet, priest, and king in the holy of holy places. And he is meant to take that out as, as he and Eve are being fruitful and multiplying and, and dressing and keeping the garden and subduing the earth. They are to be spreading the boundaries of the garden out so that the whole world becomes the garden. That's what Adam was to be doing. He was to be leading God's people as God's prophet, priest, and king in taking the garden out, in glorifying God by taking and subduing the whole world and turning the whole world into a worshiping sanctuary. Now, how do we know this? Well, we know it because after the fall, as, um, as God renews his purposes and, and we read about the details of the tabernacle, and you should do that, Don't skip over those details. And as we read about the details in the temple, there are pomegranates and palm trees and lilies and cedar. Why why all this botanical imagery? And there's a vine around the front of the temple. Why? This is God saying, I am going to restore what was lost. I am going to restore a place where my people are going to worship me as they ought to. Um. Adam, as God's prophet, was given the word of God in the garden. He was given it about the mandate to be fruitful and multiply. He was given it about subduing creation and having rule over it. He was given it about guarding and keeping the garden. Now, sometimes there are bad translations of that where you'll read in a, in a book or a copy of scripture or translation that'll say, dress and tend, where those Hebrew words are only used one other place in the whole of the Old Testament, it's with the priest in in the Mosaic law. They were to guard and keep the most holy place and the holy place from uncleanness. So Adam is supposed to keep evil out. In order to do that, he has to know what evil is. And And to know what evil is, he has God's word. He has... He has been entrusted as the prophet of humanity. Adam should have told his wife, the moment he knew she had been tempted, we cannot do this. We must, we must not allow evil into this place. So Adam was responsible to guard Eve and then subsequently any of their offspring as a prophet. Um, Adam even experienced something of the prophetic ministry when. God brought animals to him and told him, name them. And whatever he named them, he would say, zebra. And that was its name, whatever language they spoke. And he, what was he doing? He was modeling what God had just done when God spoke the world into existence, right by the word of his power. Here, even that is a function of his prophetic ministry. He is to, as it were, pronounce God's purposes and words over every sphere of life not in some kind of magical way, but as a faithful, prophetic voice to the God who had placed him in that garden sanctuary. Um, Adam, as priest, as I've said, was not there to offer sacrifices, but he was there to offer gifts to God. He was there. um, He should have been the worship leader of Eden. So he should have been the one uh, gathering together all of his and Eve's offspring and leading them into the heavenly worship in the garden sanctuary um, and protect that place from any uncleanness, any impurity. That's, that was what he was supposed to do as priest. And then as king, he was to subdue and rule over all of creation and fulfill God's purposes by exercising that dominion. Now, um, we know that it didn't take long for Adam to fail. Um, some theologians speculate that he fell as quickly as the Sabbath day, the seventh day after God brought Eve to him, perhaps a day later. We, we don't know. We, we get the intention that it happened very quickly. And, and Adam forfeited the right to fulfill God's purposes, And if I can say this tonight before we look at Christ as the last Adam briefly, I would just say that so many people are trying to fulfill in themselves what Adam forfeited in the fall, and it is a futile exercise. It's a futile exercise. Um... The accomplishment of one individual is overshadowed by another within a decade. Um, everything tends to entropy. Children die. Loved ones die. Spouses die. Um, death reigns, Paul says in Romans five. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those over those who had not sinned like Adam all of the sin, all of the misery. Um, Adam, instead of being the fountainhead and representative of blessing, by disobeying in the one act that God gave him to protect becomes the conduit of sin and death and misery for all of us. Um, There's a picture, isn't there, even in Genesis of this, where God exiles Adam out of the garden east of Eden. He puts the angels with the flaming sword. And then as you read the narrative, and Cain then murders Abel, I mean the first sons of the first parents, and and does that atrocious thing. And then God dr- drives him further east, Cain. And, and you get this picture that man is going, Further and, further and further and further and further and further and further and further away from God. You know, I found myself making this mistaken statement recently. You know, our world, our world, speaking about today, it's so awful. It's, and it is terrible. It's always been terrible. Listen, listen. Even in the 50s, when it seemed more dignified, it was just Pharisaic veneer. You understand that, right? That, that there was never a golden day when people's hearts weren't raging with depravity. There might have been more social decorum but that's not that's not godliness that's not that's not what Adam was called to do and be from the heart as a righteous image bearing vine prophet priest and king for God. Um and so the Bible takes us from there to how how will this be? How how will how will the original purposes of God be fulfilled? How will God enter into time and space and remedy what's happened? And, and we know the answer. We know that first promise, Genesis 3.15, and that's, that's that seed promise, and he's going to bring an offspring. He, there's, it's interesting. So many try to take dominion of this world through their own offspring and, and can't, but, but God says there will be one. There will be another one. And he will come, and he will do everything Adam failed to do, and he will undo everything Adam did. That's, that's the most simple way to think about Jesus as the last Adam. He will do everything that Adam failed to do, and he will undo everything that Adam did by himself. And so when we, when we look at Christ and we look at what the New Testament says, especially in Romans 5 and Hebrews 2 and 1 Corinthians 15, we, we see that he, he begins to renew in himself, in his own person, what Adam should have been, and he's going to do it better. Augustine, by the way, used to talk about the, the felix culpa, the happy or the blessed fall, that, that we get more than we would have gotten with Adam if Adam had never disobeyed. We get more in Christ. We, we learn more about who God is. We learn more about the love of God for not just his image bearers, but for filthy sinners like us, like us, whose hearts are so polluted with unfaithfulness and uncleanness. And yet, in Christ, he is he is restoring that image. I think I've told you this illustration, and perhaps I haven't before, but when I was a teenager, my m- mom used to read a lot of articles in the New York Times, and we lived in Philadelphia when I was very young, and she had um, she had an interest in the art world, and uh, she told me about the Barnes Museum. Apparently, there was a wealthy financier who Owned the largest collection of private art, Renoirs and all kinds of art. Um, and uh, he had a basically in his will, he said that no one should ever touch them, no one should ever do anything that would ever impact them. They needed to be kept in their original condition. And over the years, more and more of his artwork as he accumulated these great, you know, Monet and uh, Manet and Renoir, and and they started getting stored down in a uh, coal basement, in a basement with a, with, uh, with a with a coal generator down there. And I don't know, I, I, I don't know what it is, but <laughs> and the coal got on the pictures, and over time they were just completely marred with the coal, and so uh, an executive decision was made to break his will and to restore those those images, this, the, that artwork. And in a very real sense, what the Bible is giving us is the story of how God is going to restore the image that Adam lost, and he's going to do it by coming. And this is amazing. The very God in whose image were made came in the flesh as the very image of God, so that wherever Jesus steps and walks and talks and whatever he does, God is doing that. When you look at Jesus, you see God. Writer of Hebrews says this, he is the brightness of the Father's glory, the exact representation of his person. Philip says to Jesus, show us the Father, and it is sufficient. Jesus says, how long have I been with you? And do you not know me? He says to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. Um, John tells us, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He is the very image of God. Um, if you want to see what God's like, you look at Jesus. That is the infinite God in the flesh, and he comes to be what Adam couldn't have been and failed to be, and then to restore that image in his people. know, I love this just briefly, and we'll come to the second point here in a moment. Um, I love how whenever Jesus is instructing the disciples in the upper room And he's talking about sending the Holy Spirit, and he's about to go to the cross, and it's the lengthiest discourse that he has with them on his way to the cross. And and if you look through chapters 13 through 16, you'll notice that whenever Jesus tells them what he's going to do for them and in them, it's always what's true of him first. So he says, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. He says, my joy that you may have my joy, and he says that you may abide in my love. Isn't that awesome? He is is the righteous, glorious image bearer of God. When he goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration, what happens? His face, the effulgence of the divine being breaks through. Um, What Adam would have had by way of reflection, Jesus has from within the divine nature breaking through the veil of his humanity. This This is the righteous image bearer of God coming to renew that image. At the end of the day, that is what he's doing right now if you're united to him by faith. He is actively, as the last Adam, working to renew his image in you. And then he is God's true vine. And he says there in the upper room in John 15, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. I've chosen you that you may go and bear fruit. What is Jesus doing as the last Adam? He comes and he is is renewing the image of his people. He's renewing God's image in them through himself, and he is filling the world with fruit-bearing branches. Isn't that awesome? What Adam failed to do, Jesus is doing. The church is the temple. The church is the garden. Um. By the way, just as an aside, I don't think it's incidental in the Gospel of John. John uses all kinds of double entendres. He'll say something but mean a deeper thing to it. And, and um, you know, I, I've always loved when Jesus rises on that first resurrection day and Mary's there, and, and John says she, she thought he was the gardener. He is the gardener. He's the heavenly gardener. Sin began in a garden Isaac Ambrosian, old Puritan, said the sin began in a garden, and so it's right that the remedy for sin began in a garden, Gethsemane, and that Christ rose in a garden. You see, he's he's the gardener. He's restoring the garden. He's restoring the vine. He is the vine. He's restoring fruitfulness in his people throughout the earth. Isn't that awesome? Every nation, tongue, tribe, people on the face of the earth are bringing their praises to him. And so that brings us to the third thing. He is humanity's prophet, priest, and king. You know this, but let me me just point out a few things because sometimes when we think of Jesus as our prophet, we tend to reduce that down to his teaching, just his ethical teaching. And you have to listen very carefully to this. Sinclair Ferguson makes this point. He says, the last Adam exercises his prophetic authority by his word of forgiveness to the paralytic by his word of power, through which he exercises the demons and demonstrates his authority over the ancient serpent, by his word of power over the storm, where nature is subordinated to the prophet of God, by his word of moral power as he calls his disciples to demonstrate that this one is the true prophet of God who has authority over the hearts of men and women, and eventually, in the consummation, listen carefully, when the bride of Christ is presented to Christ himself. You remember how Paul puts it. What is the hallmark of that bride? The hallmark of that bride in Ephesians 5 is that she listens to the prophetic voice of her husband. I think that's awesome. He exercises his prophetic power over every sphere in his ministry, in his miracles, and ultimately in his church. You know, Adam in the garden had one great failing as a prophet. He should have protected Eve. And I've often thought it's not arbitrary that when Jesus is in the garden with his disciples about to go to the cross, what does he say to them? He says, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Here you have the bridegroom prophetically protecting the bride. Isn't that interesting? It's like Paul says, the bride listens to the voice of her prophet husband, the last Adam. And then he is, as you all know, he is the priest. And the writer of Hebrews outlines that in an incredible extent from chapter 5 to chapter 10. And, And he's the greater Melchizedek. And And he's greater than the Levitical priest. And he is not only the one who intercedes for the people and sacrifices for them, he is the sacrifice, as Pastor Barrett pointed out. He is the burnt offering. He is the peace offering. He is the lamb that was slain. And then he takes his blood and he carries that, as it were, into heaven on the mercy seat for you. And now, in heaven, the last Adam ever lives to make intercession for you. And the writer of Hebrews tells us, this is awesome, that he stands as the worship leader of his people in chapter 2. And and this is is the picture we get in Hebrews 2. The writer, quoting Isaiah, says, Here I am, this is Jesus speaking, Here I am and the children you have given me. says that to the Father. And then he says, I will put my trust in him. I will sing your praises among my brethren. He's doing what Adam failed to do leading us. Where does the joy come from? Whenever we sing, and I love hearing a congregation sing their hearts out, but when that happens, and it happens naturally... And it comes from something deep within. Where is that coming from? It's coming from the last Adam interceding for you and leading you into heavenly worship. If you ever have a sense that you have entered into the presence of God in worship, that if you have ever had a sense of being in the throne room, it's because the spirit of God sent by the last Adam is lifting you up into that worship experience as the people of God. Um. And then finally, he is king. You know, I've never noticed this before, and I'll just point this out briefly, but um, Jesus, he he was always prophet, priest, and king as Christ, as the anointed one, the Messiah. And whatever those Old Testament prophets, priests, and kings did, he did perfectly and and fully and in a way only he could do it. But I was reading a, a theologian this week that made the point that It's also right to think about Jesus's ministry as prophet, priest, and king as the last Adam as happening progressively. So first he comes and he teaches and he heals. He uses that powerful prophetic word. Then he lays down his life as the atoning sacrifice, as the priest, at the end of his ministry, And then when he rises, he receives all authority and power in heaven and on earth. It's not neat. It's as if it's all moving to that. So that he is regaining dominion. Now, I'm going to say this as we close because there's so much more we could say. Um, We do not take dominion in the way Adam would have taken dominion before the fall. Um, The writer of Hebrews says that so clearly. We don't see the world to come, but we see Jesus who was made for a little while lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. He has secured it in himself and now through the preaching of the word, through the spread of the gospel, through deeds of love and mercy done in his name and for the glory of God, the kingdom of God is advancing and every time A sinner is brought from death to life, forgiven, reconciled to God, united to the last Adam. He is exercising his dominion over this world, preparing us for the new creation, the new heavens, and the new earth to come. And he's done everything necessary so that all he calls us to do is abide in him. I was thinking about Pastor Cosby's emphasis this morning in the sermon, John 15:5. That's the vine. That's, that's him as the, the last Adam, the vine. And, and he says, without me, you can do nothing. Abide in me. So that we can stand back and we can say, well, wow, this is all amazing or maybe confusing to you. But no matter what you step back and look at, the goal is to drive you to him, that you would stay close to him that you would trust in him, that you continue calling on him, that you continue worshiping him, that you continue delighting in him and rejoicing in him, and that you would find in him everything that you need as the one who did what the first Adam could never do and undid what the first Adam did in bringing us here. Um, I'll leave you with one final quote. There was a famous French... Reformed pastor Adolf Monah, and he was dying of cancer. He did his last 25 sermons on his deathbed. Uh, it's a book now published under the title Living in the Hope of Glory. And Monah has a section in one of those sermons where he says, I think about Jesus Christ so much. I pray to him so much. I meditate in him so much. I rejoice in him so much. It would be idolatry if he were not God and God in the highest sense of that term. The last Adam is fully God and fully man, and he has done everything that we need. And it's all in him, and it's all yours by faith. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you have given us your son as the last Adam, the second man. We pray that you would thrill our hearts and our minds in meditations about him. We pray that you would increase our faith in him. We pray that we would be fruit-bearing branches, abiding in the living vine. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would exercise your ministry as prophet, priest, and king in us, in this church, in our families. We pray that we would know more of your sweet grace and the redemption that we freely have in you and all of the benefits that flow to us because of you, the one man coming and doing what we could never do for ourselves. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would fix our eyes on you this week ahead. We pray these things in your name. Amen.